Welcome to Time After Time, a non-sponsored, highly judgmental podcast about time travel and love and friendship and the movies that bring them together into our living rooms. I'm Helena and I'm Paige. And maybe in an alternate timeline, you've already listened to this podcast and you loved it. Let's go. All right. Here we go. All right, y'all. It's the big one. It's strapping. Wait, we gotta do a. You mean a drum roll? A drum roll. You don't have to do it. Groundhog Day. Wow, wow, wow. You asked, we listened. Y'all, we know Groundhog Day is like the essential time travel rom com. We have been planning on doing it from the beginning. Um, and it's definitely something that a lot of people have been talking about among our millions of listeners. The fan pages have been asking, the Reddit yeah. threads have been alight with speculation on when we would do it. Someone rebooted Tumblr just to, to tumble at us. <laughs> yeah, they were tumbling right at us. So here we go. Everyone, I want you to know that I wrote the summary this time, but we will be splitting the work of reading it. Groundhog Day uh, is described by Wikipedia as a fantasy comedy. It is a classic of the time travel rom-com genre, if not the classic. So classic, in fact, that the phrase Groundhog Day has become a common term to reference a repetitive, unpleasant, and monotonous situation, and is literally recognized in the dictionary under two definitions, the holiday itself that takes place on February 2nd, and a situation in which events are or appear to be continually repeated. We open on February 1st as weatherman and certified jerk Phil Connors, as played by a very grumpy Bill Murray, is assuring his loyal viewers that the blizzard coming their way is almost certainly going to miss Western PA. That evening after the broadcast, Phil, cute producer Rita, played by Andy McDowell, we love, and cameraman Larry, a young Chris Elliott, also love, travel to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania for the annual Groundhog Day festivities, an assignment that Phil absolutely loathes and complains about the whole way there. Because he is an insufferable diva, Phil refuses to stay in the regular hotel where Rita and Larry are staying, instead booking into a B&B with a sweet old lady hostess. The next morning on February 2nd, Phil wakes up at 6 a.m. to the radio alarm playing Sunny and Cher's I Got You Babe as a pair of DJs banter about the weather. He reluctantly arrives at the Groundhog Day festivities where he gives a lackluster report and then crankily demands that they get on the road despite the looming blizzard. Unfortunately for Phil, he got it wrong this time. Puxatani is in the epicenter of the blizzard and there is no way out of town. They're stuck there for the night. The next morning, Phil wakes up at 6 a.m. to I Got You Babe and oddly, the same DJ banter as the day before. What? He goes about this first day thinking that he's had a bad case of deja vu and tries again to leave town before the blizzard hits, but no such luck. When he wakes up on day three, he finally realizes what has happened. He's gotten Groundhog day Oh my gosh. But since this movie and that term weren't a thing yet, he is obviously ill-equipped to deal with this situation. So he goes through a bunch of different time loop phases that we'll get into in detail, but basically he's finally able to break the cycle when he has learned a bunch of skills, helped a bunch of people in the town, become less of a shady curmudgeon, and most importantly, proved himself worthy of the love of curly-haired goddess Andy McDowell. When he finally does all of this and escapes the loop, he wakes up on February 3rd and unilaterally decides that he and Andy McDowell are going to move to Puxatani and start their lives together. 
The end? There was a apparently a sequel that was talked about and never done, so. <gasps> oh my gosh, I didn't yeah. know that. Mm-hmm. So that is the end, but. The end? But So this movie is, is more lore than it is movie, right? Um, yeah, I would say for those of us who uh, work in the um, time loop movie genre uh, industrial complex, this is like uh, definitely one of the founding documents of right. our industry. Yeah, it's kept in a locked safe. <laughs> um, Paige, did you, had you ever watched this movie before? No, I had never seen this movie, but I could have told you exactly what it was about because, so funny. you know, it's become... The movie that all other time loop, maybe not all time travel, but definitely time loop movies are compared to. In the on the Wikipedia page, Palm Springs is mentioned as like a movie that follows this model. Yeah, for sure. I um, think I think that what one thing that we said we liked about Palm Springs was that it like was conscious of the fact that it was following this model. Right. But I think there are other movies that aren't conscious of that and don't do as good a job. But I, I think that it's, you know, a classic for a reason. Like, I remember watching this movie at Nicole McIntyre's. Shout uh, out! Shout out to Nicole McIntyre. Name drop. Um, she had she like a. Now? Oh, she actually just became a therapist. I saw oh her gosh. Facebook Congratulations, this Nicole. Nicole McIntyre, congratulations on your journey. I'm so happy for you. Um, but she had a birthday party when she was like 10 years old and we watched Groundhog Day. It's a weird choice for a 10 year old's birthday party. Yeah, I remember it like feeling like a very adult movie in some ways and being like, ooh, we're watching this like actual grown up movie at Nicole McIntyre's birthday party. Um, and I, I looked back on it fondly for most of my life for that reason. It has been interesting to do a rewatch and a rethink Mm -hmm. about it for sure. Yeah. And I would say it'd be, it's interesting to watch it for the first time now having not only heard so much about it just in my life but also having decided to talk exclusively about time travel rom-coms yeah yeah Um, you you got into the genre without even (laughs) knowing this movie which I think is really interesting right and I also yeah it's definitely it's definitely very interesting to have watched the movies that have stood on its shoulders Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then gone back and, and seen, you know, there are obviously problems that we'll discuss, but you, this movie did something that literally, I mean, as far as we know, uh, well, there was a, a lawsuit, some guy claimed he did it first, but mainstream-wise, uh, you know, this movie did something very new and um, set us up for a lot of future films. And because of that, we are adding a different section to this uh, to this podcast today. Because uh, since it is so much a part of lore, we discovered by purely looking at the Wikipedia page that there are a lot of fun facts about this movie um, mm-hmm. and its making. So uh, we would like to introduce to you our next section, Taking, Taking a, a Trip, trip down, down Memory Lane. lane. Eh, I'm not crazy about that no. uh, title. Dear listeners, if you have an idea for what we could use as a different time pun title, mm-hmm. please let us know. Yeah, it doesn't really work because it's like the movie taking a trip down memory lane. Because Not us, like we don't. This movie came out in 1993. Um, came out in February 1993, I believe. So neither of us were Did it come born out yet. on Groundhog Day. Came out on February 12th, 1993. Oh, that's bullshit. Seems like a wasted opportunity. They couldn't have pushed it forward ten days. My God. Wow. 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 Um, all right. 
Paige, get, hit us with some of these fun facts because I was really enjoying them. I thought they were super fun when you told me them. Okay, so here's some 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 pretty like standard, not super fun facts. It was one of the highest grossing films of 1993, which, as I just said, is the year we were born. Um, so, you know, the most important year in, in human history. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, it won a BAFTA for Best Screenplay. And in 2006, the United States Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in the National Film Registry, Ooh. finding it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I must say it probably fit, fit the culturally... I would say culturally, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say it's aesthetically significant. Um, so I will say, as we were watching the movie, we were having a, a slight debate about whether and... This might make some people mad. We were having a slight debate about whether Bill Murray was the poor man's Tom Hanks. And I had said yes. I, I'm sorry to Bill Murray. Um, <laughs> I just think that, like, this movie was probably written for Tom Hanks. Or, that was the, the, the feeling that I got. Because, you know, Tom Hanks is the essential 90s rom-com guy. Right. Um, and lo and behold, Tom Hanks was the first choice for casting. Um, and he turned it down, saying something along the lines of, like, he had played too many nice people at that point, so people would see his redemption coming. Oh. Which mm-hmm, mm, feels like a cop. He feels like he did not want to do this movie. Which, honestly, like, if you had asked me who is in Groundhog Day, I would have been like, it's Tom Hanks. <laughs> honestly, so, so I feel like it, either way, he mm. ended up in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael Keaton also turned down the part um, to do Birdman, weirdly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, it seems like when they ended up with Bill Murray, they uh, kind of got a bum deal because it sounds like he was a huge diva throughout the whole process. Okay, I'm not done talking about casting. We uh, have not gotten sorry. to the most okay, important, that part. the most important cast member of this film, Scooter, was a live groundhog that they used uh, to portray Punxsutawney Phil. Punxsutawney officials were upset that their town was not used for filming, so they would not allow the real Punxsutawney Phil to appear in the movie. Um, and this is something I do not like, and we can talk about this. The groundhog that they used, Scooter, was not, like, specially bred for use on film and was just trapped in the wild near Illinois where it was being filmed only a few weeks before filming. Bad. This is... I was worried throughout the movie that this was animal abuse. Um... Yeah, she kept freaking out every time the groundhog was on screen, and I was like, I don't know, probably PETA was there. It's probably fine, right? And I don't know. They have certain they have certain thing, guidelines they're supposed to follow. Yes, but once I found out it wasn't even it wasn't even like a film groundhog. It was a groundhog they captured in the wild and then stuck in a car with Bill Murray to drive off a cliff. Well, they didn't actually drive off a cliff. But I'm just saying I don't love that they just caught a wild groundhog who was minding his business and just like stuck him in this tiny thing and then held him up and then put him in a car. It, yeah, he was minding his business. That's a good point. Yeah, it feels bad. Um, so I'm just going to say that. And, you know, I, I hope... Scooter, wherever he is. I hope Scooter is, is doing well. I hope Scooter... And I don't know, can you re-release a groundhog into the wild after you've kind of domesticated it? I don't think so. I think no. Did somebody take the groundhog home? I, you know... Did they are... euthanize the groundhog? I'm very concerned oh, no, about Scooter. Maybe. <laughs> probably what happened yeah all right fair enough i guess i'm on team scooter was uh, abused team free hashtag free scooter hashtag free scooter i don't know this movie's not really about the groundhog let's be honest yeah but they destroyed a groundhog's life so i want to recognize scooter all right this is r.i.p scooter (laughs) 
hashtag free scooter, hashtag RIP scooter. And we're laughing, but I also feel really sad about the groundhog. So we're going to move on. Last fun casting fact. Uh, there's a scene with a neurologist. Very small part. Um, the neurologist actually played by the director, uh, Harold Ram- Ramis? Ramis? I think Ramis. Okay. So speaking of Harold Ramis, and also as Helena said, Bill Murray uh, being a little bit of a bum deal. He, I will say he did a good job acting, but it sounds yeah. like he was not super pleasant on set. Um, he had a lot of tension with the director, Harold Ramis, who he'd worked on a lot in things like Caddyshack. But the problem was that Ramis really wanted this to be a romantic comedy and Murray really wanted it to be sort of deeper and a more contemplative philosophical film. Um, maybe due in part to the fact that he was in the middle of a divorce. Um, or just that he was like a, kind of throwing a temper tantrum, it sounds like. Right. It sounds like he was in the middle of the divorce. He wanted to be taken, maybe he wants to be taken more seriously as an actor. And he was just kind of throwing a, a little bit of a, a diva fit. You know, weirdly though, I do feel like we got something in the middle. Like, like it, mm-hmm. it is kind of a contemplative film and it is a romantic comedy. So I think they, as a result of their conflict, like we, we as the viewers ended up winning. Neither of them won, but we won. I don't know. I mean, I did see some... Obviously, again, this film is in the Library of Congress. It's rated one of the top 100 films of all time by, like, AFI or some... Maybe not AFI. Entertainment Weekly? I don't know. One of those places. (laughs) Um, But I will say that there were some people, especially when it initially came out, that thought the tone was a little uneven, which is something watching it now I would agree with. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, it is a romantic comedy time loop movie so like they're trying to smash two things together and I think you come up against that in almost all of these films tonally they're very confusing sure I think we just saw a film that did it better but like I said that film had to stand on the shoulders of this film so right that you know matters and the film marked the end of Ramis and Murray's uh 20 year long partnership that films I mentioned before Caddyshack Stripes Ghostbusters they had all done together um, I will say Ramis directed this and also co-wrote it. He directed and co-wrote this with Danny Rubin. Um, but after filming concluded, they didn't speak to each other. Um, Bill Murray didn't talk about him in interviews. When Ramis talked about Bill Murray in interviews, he would criticize him. Um, and also had discussed how he had dreams that the two were friends again, which is very... Aww. Yeah. That's sad. So they didn't talk for, for over 20 years and... And they finally reconnected in the last few months of Harold Ramis' life. And it's been said that now Bill Murray speaks fondly about him. Also, um, Murray and the, Bill Murray and the, uh, and Scooter didn't get along either. They did not. <laughs> Apparently Scooter in that car scene uh, bit Murray in the knuckles twice in the same spot. Um, and he was wearing, Bill Murray was wearing gloves and the bite still broke his skin. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Scooter was more of a diva than Bill Murray. Pass it on. Scooter was rebelling against his oppressors. Pass it on. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Um, Also, Bill Murray told Andy McDowell to really slap him. Which is one of those bullshit method actor things that only men get away with. And like, never, don't do that shit. Don't do that shit. Right. You're putting, I know you were, I know you're thinking, oh, I'm the one getting slapped. Like it's, that's, that's. I'm the one paying. You're putting someone else in a really shitty position. Don't do that. Slap you. Just don't do it. No. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I have an, another couple fun facts, but I think I'll I wait think... to talk about them until we're talking about. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we'll sprinkle them in. 
Right. See if you can spot them, dear listeners. Yeah, it'll be the time where I just start reciting a block of text and Helena... And I'll say, it's a fun fact. That brings us to our next section. Magic? Magic, Science? Science, Just just a dream? So, uh, basically the conceit of the time travel in Groundhog Day is pretty fuzzy. We don't really know why he's time traveling. We don't know what happened, what the the inciting incident of the time travel was, the mechanism of what it is, or Mm -hmm. if there's like any higher power that's controlling it, I think. Right. I would say the why at the very surface level seems to be like to become a better person and, and win the girl. Yeah, I mean, that's clear by the end, because that's, like, how he gets out of it, is that he wins the girl, he's a better person, and he wins the girl. But, like, that's not clear from the beginning. We shouldn't say wins the girl, I guess. He's a better person, and thus the girl agrees to to be with him. I suppose, yeah. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Um, Because women are not a prize to be won. But see, it's in in all of us. It's in all of us. We all have patriarchal tendencies within us. Yes, biases. So you're not immune, dear listener. Not even you. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. You with the headphones in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The only person who presumably gets to time travel in this is Bill Murray. Yes. Uh, Andy McDowell is fully ignorant of his time traveling. Uh, Sometimes. One time he uh, tells her. Occasionally he does tell her uh, within some of the loops. but But she's not... She's only aware when he determines she should become aware. He's in charge. And interestingly, the the time when he does tell her, he's he uh, frames it as "I'm a god." <laughs> Did you notice that? Yes, which is I mean, which is an interesting part of the the why of this that I will get into. There's a little bit. A, there's been dissertations written about Groundhog Day, of course, and and kind of the why. Um, so, but first I'll say regarding the how, apparently the studio really wanted uh, an, a rewrite in the script with an explanation for why Phil becomes trapped. Because like I said, we literally don't know. Helena and I wrote down notes as we were going through like, oh, is it that one time he got hit in the head with a broom? Is it the one uh, person of color in the film, the bartender who the bartender? looks at him weird? Yeah, <laughs> which would be a very bad explanation yes. if that was what it was. Is it the spooky, not spooky, but is it the, the quaint B&B full of old people? That he's, it's a little spooky. It's a little spooky, but there's but there's really no. We were fishing. Um, so anyway, so the studio refused to greenlight the project without sort of an explicit reason being laid out. And one of the, the writers, he had some ideas, um including a jilted lover placing a curse on Phil, a mad scientist invention malfunctioning. That one would have been very out of place in this movie. Oh yeah, that would have been very tonally strange. <laughs> um, anyway, so so the producer and uh, Harold Ramis worked with Ruben to write these scenes, but they placed the scenes too late in the shooting schedule to be filmed um, so that they would get their way. <laughs> so they're technically in the script, but they knew that they were never going to film them, and even if they did, they were never going to put them in the movie. So they really consciously did not want to give us a how. Which I think is cool. Like, I think that um, the there not being an explanation is a really strong choice, and it makes this, it elevates this film from being, like, a funny, like, weird little time loop uh, 
I don't know, it could be like kind of a tacky time loop comedy into like maybe something that has like a little more of a spiritual question at the heart of it. Yeah. Uh, also, I think it, it does a good job of, and I'm sure I, this probably wasn't their intention, but it leaves a very nice blank slate for, like I said, movies to come after it and build on that. And then when we talk about the why, there's, like I said, dissertations written about this because... Because this movie captured a lot of people's imaginations. Right, yeah. It was a very creative outlet and people kind of mapped onto it, I think, what they wanted to see. Um, first of all, there's been a lot of writing just, just about the duration of the real-time entrapment in the time loop. So some people believe the film takes 10 years of loops. Um, some people believe that it could, it has to be more like 30 or 40 years considering the, you know, all the phases and the stuff he learns how to do. Um, including skills that take a lot of time, like ice sculpting and, uh, learning to play the piano really well right. and learning French. Right. Um, sort of the 10,000 hours, uh, theory of becoming a master at something. Mm -hmm. He has that many times over. In an original draft of the script, uh, apparently Phil himself estimates that he's been trapped for about 70 or 80 years, um, having used books to track the passage of time. So that's one thing that's interesting. Um, and again, has become, I think, a staple of, of time loop movies where at some point someone's like, I don't know how long I've been doing this. Yeah, it's like time doesn't matter anymore. Right. So also interestingly, a lot of people uh, took stock in the fact that Ramis was a Buddhist or embraced some precepts of a Buddhist lifestyle from his wife um, and talked about how it takes 10,000 years for a soul to evolve to the next level. A lot of people took from that to me and kind of... It's a Buddhist film where it's right. like Phil needs to evolve to the next level and this is his chance to do it. Right. I mean, if it, take, if it took all of us 10,000 years to become a good person, like none of us are... Why does he why does he get to become a good person? You know? Yeah, him in his own form gets to become a good person where the whereas the rest of us have to Yeah. Regenerate a bunch of life. Yeah, he's being rewarded for being a dick at the beginning. Yeah, he gets he's such thirty a dick to forty years to learn how to play piano. Now he gets to just know how to play piano. The rest of us would like some time off to learn how to play piano. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and everyone kept saying that, like in quarantine, we're all gonna like Groundhog Day ourselves and learn all these things and write King Lear and all this bullshit. And like instead, I'm just like working from home. First of all, you've sewn like an entire wardrobe. Okay, that's fair. But uh, still, I, there are things. <laughs> and also, we would like to say like you don't need to be productive. There's a global pandemic going on, etc., etc., etc. No, no, and that's but, that's part of my point is that like we have so much that like we could get done right now but like keep in mind folks it took phil like several different phases to get to the point where he was like i'm gonna self-improve also he didn't have to do anything else I, or i guess he goes some days he goes and does a 10 minute news broadcast that's all that's his whole work is a the 10 minute of broadcast us, at like 6 30 a.m right and like we're lucky helene and i are lucky we both have jobs so that we work from home but we're still so we're working. We're still working. We're no, still I, I still have to clean the dishes. Yeah, no, he definitely doesn't have to do that because he wakes up the next day and right. any anything that's dirty is clean again. Right. So this is not what we're saying is this is not a perfect allegory for quarantine. Stop saying that it is. Helena. Uh, also, oh shoot shouting back to what was that girl's name? Nicole McIntyre? <laughs> shouting back to Nicole McIntyre. I don't know why she's become the subject of this <laughs> podcast. I'm just saying back to her her new therapy journey 
there's a lot of psychiatrists who have told uh, who've told the writers of this film that they recommend the film to their patients and addicts to help them see that they're trapped in a repeating cycle. A lot of people have found a lot of meaning in this film and, and we're happy for them. But now we're going to come in and fucking destroy it. <laughs> Get ready, folks. Which brings us to the part where we rip apart this film for all the inconsistencies and the ethics and of the what's holes. going on and the plot holes and all of that, which is called... What have you done? So Phil goes through uh, quite a few phases in this time loop. Like we said, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of time that he spends caught in the loop, um, and therefore they have a lot of uh, leeway to sort of give him his journey, which I like. I like we like yeah. we've established before. We always like a film that has a lot of loops. More loops, the better. The first thing that he does once he realizes that he realizes that he's in the loop is he starts just which happens very quickly usually that's my first issue with it oh yeah he figures it out um not i don't have a problem with him figuring it out quickly like we said that part we don't want to watch him figure it out for too long but day three when he decides that it's a thing that's happening all of a sudden he is is just doing all the things it's a very quick turnaround from like is this what's happening to I'm just going to risk my life and punch people in the face. Yeah, and risk other people's lives right. too, which I really dislike. Um, he, uh, What if someone's just playing a really bad prank on you, dude? Three days just feels like not enough time to really take it feel in. in your soul that you're in a time loop. But then again, we have to remember that like the timeline is not always linear in this film. Like, no, but we that don't day it is. Know. That day it is because we, he wakes up with the pencil breaking. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Paige is watching these things closely. Uh, it's a curse. Um, <laughs> that's for anyone who hasn't seen it. He very smartly, the, after the second day where he's like, was that just deja vu? What's happening? Or maybe it's the third day. I don't know. He breaks a pencil um, and puts it next to his bed. And when he wakes up, the pencil is not broken anymore because time has reset. Time has reset. Oh, we didn't say in the how... Um, it is a time thing. It's not like with uh, Palm Springs where whenever they fall asleep, it's 6 a.m. on the 6 a.m. it resets. Yes. Yes. So so his first kind of thing that he does is just like does anything without consequence. So he like crashes a car and like gets arrested and uh, does all sorts of things like that. We call this the doing fun sex and robbery phase. Um, he eats a lot of bad food. Yeah, he like binges probably food. is a thing I would do day one. I feel like, yeah, but also like you would have a tummy ache the whole That's day true. and you'd have to deal with that all day long, which would be very sad. Yeah. Um, he uh, figures out how to rob an armored truck by like watching them for several days in a row. He seduces this poor woman who... Nancy. Nancy, who's in the town, and she, like... Basically, the film portrays her as, like, a hot idiot, I think. Is that accurate? I would say this film portrays all women who aren't Rita as a hot idiot. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, definitely. Um, he basically just takes advantage of her and, uh, you know, uses his time loops to find out information about her. Classic 
time loop uh, ethical consent conundrum. Right. He um, goes ahead and like finds out all this stuff about her in order to uh, get into her good graces right. and Which, seduce her. And I would say this is the worst of the ethical violations we've seen because he's just straight up lies. Like he finds out what high school she went to and who her English teacher was so that he can bump into her and be like, Nancy from so-and-so high school with English teacher, right? He's not even trying to find things out to connect with her. He's literally just finding things out to knowingly manipulate her into sleeping with him. He also proposes to her in the middle yeah, of sex. Yeah, which is wild. <laughs> and also, like, it it makes me really bummed out because, like, when he proposes to her in the middle of that, it's like... After knowing her for a couple hours. He knows her for a couple of hours, and he proposes to her, and then she, like, immediately is like, oh my gosh, I love you too, Phil. Let's bone. And it's just unfortunate because, like... If that happened to me, I'd be like, oh my god, what, what is going on? Like, I have to get out of here. Right. Like, you're, you're a crazy person. And it's a very gross moment. The movie's also rated PG. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I would have thought it would be PG-13. No, they were trying like to, that. um, they were trying to appeal to a, a, they were trying to make it a family movie. Hmm. Teaching a lot of little boys how to... Nancy definitely, like, fully straddles him. How is that, like, PG-13? PG. CommonSenseMedia.org says, Great film, but should have been PG-13. Yeah, there's sexual content. Sex before marriage is praised. It is praised, everyone. And I would actually say it's, it's not, like, not that it's sex negative, but I would say it's it's Bill Murray sleeping with a lot of people negative. Yeah, no, they def- the film does not... Praise the the version of Bill Murray that like sleeps with a lot of women indiscriminately. Right. I would say, and I think in the feminist part we'll talk about like the Madonna whore complex that for is, sure exists in this film. The point is that uh, he does. It, I would say that it, it does frown upon um, casual sex. Casual sex because this is in the phase where he's like doing a ton of bad things. Those things are you know, uh, I mean, bad by whose standards? Because like I think robbing a bank is good. Oh, okay, fair. If you're an anarchist. Yeah, yeah, we also, we did talk about when we were watching it, is this just an anarchist allegory? He's like, I don't have to play by society's rules anymore. I'm going to escape the cops. I'm going to steal money from from mean banks. Yeah, that's that's true. But he has no sense of, like, altruism or, like, larger sense of, like, society, I think. Which, you know, that's probably something that he needs to learn. Sure. And it's one of, one of the things he needs to do. So the next phase that he has is that he basically uh, gets bored of seducing the town idiots like Nancy, and he goes on to seducing a much more difficult prospect, who is Rita. Um, she's a brunette. Because she is a brunette hair. with curly hair. Um, sidebar, we are really excited to see a curly-haired heroine in a yes. 1993 romantic mm-hmm. comedy. She's got some frizz going on. We love it. We, we love, love to see it. Um, we, are, we are both people who who deal with with the curls the curls and the frizz and I feel like you don't see it a lot in romantic comedies so uh shout out to Andy McDowell and her curly hair um also shout out to Marissa Tomei uh yeah Marissa Tomei has in my in my cousin Vinny right in my cousin Vinny oh what an icon I love that I I wish we could do my cousin Vinny but it does not it does not fit fit. any of our pre-con I just wish we could do maybe we should do another podcast where we just talk about like Marissa Tomei Tomei, because she's just curly haired heroines curly hair okay dear listeners mini driver yeah oh my god Paige this is so great keep an eye out there may be another a a spin-off podcast coming soon 
so he decides that he is going to um, do something a little more challenging, which is seduce this, uh, right. you know, brainy uh, brunette woman named Rita. And I think at some point we're supposed to, because he also says Rita's name when he's sleeping with Nancy, which is why he has to propose to her. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. It's so weird. And I don't know at what point in the movie we're supposed to know that he's fallen for Rita. I think we're supposed to assume that he has, like, a crush on Rita from the very beginning, because he starts out the movie basically just sexually harassing her. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get there. There's a lot, the, yeah, their relationship is very strange, and, like, right. he is not, he's... I would say the most problematic elements of this movie is the amount of sexual harassment, and I get that he's not supposed to be a good person. Like, I get that we're not supposed to like that he's sexually harassing her, but I do think they miss the part miss the aspect of it that she has to deal with this as part of her job. Right. If it was just like, uh, he's kind of, he says kind of inappropriate things and they're friends, it would be one thing. But like, this is her job. And he also is, I think, in a bit of a position of power over her. Yeah, 100%. And she, so she has to, her responses to it are all very tame. Yeah, she's very like eye-rolly, very like, you know. Ignores it. Yeah, just because she can't of plays it down. Yeah. She can't do anything. She's a young producer. He's, like, a, a big wig at the studio, and uh, it sucks, and we hate it. But uh, we learn in this, like, seducing Rita phase that Rita is, like, honestly, very unlikable. <laughs> yeah, I would say um, pretentious. Pretentious. Pretentious and, uh, and, in my view, like... Judgmental. Rather unlikable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he has this whole, you know, at the very end when he's, like, super in love with her... Still speech about how kind she is, and I'm I'm like I believe you. We haven't seen her been uh, be unkind, but we also didn't see her be kind. Yeah, she we, mostly just like quotes French poetry and rolls her eyes at Phil, and like which, talks about how she like maybe wants to live in the mountains. Yeah, the more Andy McDowell opens her mouth, the less I am charmed by her. Well, yeah, I um, mean the problem is that like she's not a well-rounded woman character. Right. Like, nothing, like, she doesn't speak like any person speaks almost, because, yeah. like, the people who wrote it are men and they don't know, they don't think that women speak like normal people, I think. Right. They think that there's two kinds of women. There's the stupid idiot Nancys and there's the well-read, smart, quote French poetry women, Rita. Yeah. And those women would never be tricked by any sort of amount of time loop, uh, Recon. Nor would they just want to have sex with someone just because they felt like it. Right. One of those days in the time loop. Right. I, the the idea that like he never just lucked into a day when Rita was like feeling a little horny and like decided to have sex with him for fun. Right. Especially because there's no, he does all the super unethical things that should work. Right. He finds out all the stuff about her and like basically parrots her own language back to her before she could say it. So she would think that they are very compatible, um, which, A, it's like, are we supposed to believe he's fallen for her, but yet he doesn't care if she likes him for him. He just is just going to parrot language back to her. And it's all about getting to the, the vagina. Yeah, getting to that goal of, like, having sex, and that's the only thing that matters. And it's right. the only indication that you've, like, done it. Yes. And it's also, it doesn't make sense to me why it doesn't work, too. Yeah, I think that, like, if we are seeing Rita as this, like, self-possessed modern woman, quote-unquote, like, there would be a timeline in which she's like, yeah, fuck it, like, let's just fuck. Right. And that's where the Manana whore complex super comes in. For sure. Um, But we're still in the faces. (laughs) 
just you wait. We'll get there. Yeah. So um, we get a slap montage, which is yeah. Fun. We do love a slap montage. Uh, Andy McDowell basically just slaps him a bunch of times, indicating that like this doesn't work a whole bunch of times, and he's right. like bad at what he's trying to do. Then he gets very depressed from being slapped so many times, um, and possibly getting slapped in real life. Uh, as Bill Murray, because he made her slap him. Um, and he goes into his nihilist phase. So basically, this phase is just a lot of him feeling sorry for himself and deciding that nothing means anything and just um, committing suicide a whole bunch. Yeah. Which doesn't work, as we know in every Time Loop movie, suicide Be- never works. Right, which is, again, I think a credit to this movie as a, as a concept. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, this is the first time loop movie, really, that... I guess. I just never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Suicide wouldn't work. I mean, it, it... I guess it's also just, like, it's too easy. But we do get, like, a... I would say for a PG movie, we get a fairly disturbing suicide montage. Yeah, he brings a toaster into a bathtub. Yeah, and, like, falls off a building. It's, it, it's not, um pretty, I have I would, to say. I would also say a question I had as far as, like, consistency and plot holes and stuff is Andy McDowell and Chris Elliott, like, have to identify his body. Yeah. And so my question is, what sort of rules are there that the two of them have to continue living the rest of this day, even though the day only loops for him and he is dead? Yeah, well, it calls into question that same thing that uh, was happening in Palm Springs, where it's like, is it a multiple universe theory? Is there a right. universe in which, like, Andy McDowell and Chris Elliott have to deal with the effects of his witnessing his suicide yeah probably not i i don't think this movie suggests that there is i would say palm springs does but this movie is like nope it just it's wiped right i would just yes which again i just think it's a weird choice to show us a clip of like andy mcdowell and chris elliott continuing their day once he has gotten himself out does that mean that he is then dead for like Eight hours? Twelve hours? Until 6 a.m.? Yeah, and does he know what being dead is like? Right. And again, Palm Springs really nicely addressed, does he feel pain, right? Like, electrocuting yourself in the bathtub before you die would be very painful. Yeah, for sure. And we don't get any sort of sense to him. Even the bellyache. We don't even get a sense for him that he gets a bellyache. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe Maybe part of what is going on in this time loop is that there are no consequences. Maybe. So this phase ends with uh, him actually coming clean to Andy McDowell and being like, I am in a time loop. He, he makes this decision one day to be like, I'm in a time loop. I know everything that's going to happen. He, he proves it to her by predicting everything that will happen in the diner around them, mm-hmm. um, which is like pretty convincing. Yeah. Uh, and they have and a, fun. Kind of I would fun. say, I, and I would say, uh, well, this I guess is going backwards, but... I would say the right as the nihilism phase is starting, his like super madman loopy phase where he's just like hurling snowballs at children is very fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there there is a lot of fun in here. I mean, even the like doing fun sex and robbery, even though mostly we talked about how badly he treats that woman, like it's a lot of fun. It's fun. It's fun to watch him like rob a bank and uh, do a bunch of silly things. That, and punch uh, Ned. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I'm sorry. You were saying that he tells Rita at the end of this phase. Yeah, so uh, they actually have this pretty nice day after he comes clean to her, proving that, like, honesty is a pretty good policy, um, mm-hmm. even in a time loop. And they have this... And in, and in real life. And in, and in real life. And in real life. In time loops as in real life. 
Hmm. 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 <laughs> um, they have this lovely day together where, like, they reflect on the nature of time and life and... Play cards. And she is getting sleepy, but she, like, wants to, I think, see what happens when we hit we hit the 6 a.m. I guess she's... Which ex- I would, too, for yes. sure. Um, and he says, you can fall asleep, you know, I won't touch you. Which I think is supposed to show character growth, which is very disturbing. Yeah, that's, like, the best we can do, is you can fall asleep, I won't touch you. Oh, how sweet, Bill Murray. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and I know that he's still, like, he hasn't improved enough, but again, like, I don't think this movie does a good enough job being, like, here are the things that are bad about this guy. Right, right. I they think... Don't, they don't highlight They're, it. like, vague... It's vaguely... It's that he sleeps... I think what they think is bad is that he sleeps around and hits on Andy McDowell without getting to know her. I don't think they, like, articulate to themselves that it's... That he exerts power in a weird sexual harassy way over this woman that works for him. Yeah, yeah. If that had been clear, if it had been, if she had had some line where she was like, stop sexually harassing me, I'm right. going to tell the HR the department. Yeah. Like, but, yeah, it's 1993, so we, we take, I, but I will say, you know, again, especially for like a family film, I was not expecting as much sexual harassment as there was. Well, he's also the hero of the film. Like, ultimately, even though he's, like, kind of an anti-hero, I think we're meant to, like, fall in love with him. And, like, I don't know that we do. Anyway. Um, so... So, I will... Well, so, while we're talking about just the moment where he tells Rita, we also had a... I don't know. Maybe I'll cut this, because I don't know if anyone's going to care about this. All right, go ahead. (laughs) But we had a, a fun conversation, you, me, and my partner, about... We're like, why does he tell Rita and not the cameraman, who he's clearly been around for a lot longer? And we're like, is it classism? It definitely is. Like, I think that uh, everything about Chris Elliott and the, like, sort of way that they've characterized this cameraman makes him seem like a bit Mm -hmm. more of a uh, sort of worker guy, not like a white-collar person, like, thinking person, like Mm -hmm. Rita and... um, Phil and so yeah I think that like it's partially that he has a crush on Rita but also like he thinks Chris Elliott's an idiot right it's there's a little bit of classism and there's a lot of class politics I would say because it's very small town he's very anti-small town he has you know he hangs out with these two quote-unquote hicks in like a in a bowling alley and and definitely sees all these town people as beneath him. There's a very clear class element of this movie because he's from, he's from cosmopolitan Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh! (laughs) Where they have cappuccino, have you heard of it? (laughs) Apparently they have not in Puxatani. They have never heard of that and uh, they're horrified by it. But yeah, there's definitely like a class thing going on and he, he from the very beginning of the movie is very derisive of all the people in the town as... Mm -hmm small town hick people and we see that translated into his relationship with the cameraman even though mm-hmm. even though the cameraman is from Pittsburgh but he's still he's a he's in he's a, he's a working class he's yeah. a, you probably you know union member technician yeah and not seen as uh in the same in the same echelon as Rita who has a degree in French poetry right those are the only two echelons those are the only you're <laughs> either a working man or you have a degree in French poetry <laughs> And never the twain shall meet. Never. (laughs) All right, next phase. 
the self-betterment phase, which starts with um, basically what you, uh, all the resolutions that you had when you started quarantine. <laughs> Um, he learns a bunch of skills, which I think is interesting. Like, that's the first thing he goes to, is learning a bunch of, like, tangible skills. He learns to play piano. He uh, learns French. He learns to make ice sculptures, which, like, that's pretty cool, to be yeah. honest. I, I Yeah, which I always wonder in these movies, does he retain all those skills? I think so. Third? I think we're uh, led to believe that he does. Which, again, very lucky. Yeah, that's that sounds a, great. Sounds great. It yeah. sounds... Again, bad man, mediocre white man who kind of is a dick, rewarded. Yeah, goals and opportunity. What the fuck? So he, he does that for a while, um, and then that kind of tumbles over into this superhero phase where he starts, like, realizing that he has all these skills and he can, and he also has knowledge of, like, what's going to happen that day. And so he can save people and fix people's lives and help them in, like, ways that are big and ways that are small. Um... For example, he meets a homeless man and he uh, finds out that that day, in most of the timelines, the homeless man passes away. Um, and so he decides that he's going to um, make sure that this man lives to see another day. Um, and he finds out that he can't. Right. Which I do, I think, is, is, a, is a nice antithesis to him thinking he's a god. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it gives him like a bit of humility because he had been feeling so on top of the world from the self improvement phase and all the other things that he's doing. Like, well, he says to Rita, I'm a god. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah. But also, like, the other things that he does in this phase are like saves a kid who falls down from a right. tree and like uh, saves a wedding that's that's going to go bad. And I'm still, I think that couple is not long for this world. Though. No, for sure. But he, the wedding does go forward, <laughs> to be goes. fair. Um, but yeah, so he sort of turns into, the self-improvement phase like le bleeds over into like an altruism phase. Superhero phase. Superhero phase. Okay, I will just say he skips right over. He, it's very, it's very American. It's very individualism. It's very... I can I can make the world a better place by just, you know, doing individual acts of kindness as opposed to any sort of thinking in any of his readings or self-betterment about structural oppression. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, the the thing is, like, he only has one day to do stuff. So in a way, like, this is probably the best you can do, but you're right. Like, this is a very American <laughs> sort of, uh, you know individualistic idea of what it is to be a good person, right. which is just doing things that are, like, small and right. on your own level, rather than addressing anything larger. Right. I want to say one more thing about inconsistencies before we go, and then... Okay, go ahead, go ahead. I will say, like, this movie doesn't have a lot of inconsistencies, which is nice, um, but it doesn't make sense to me why, if he, he wakes up at the same time... The first day, he, like, does what a normal person would do. He, like, gets ready, eats breakfast, goes... And he runs into Ned on this street. This Ned is just like this guy who wants to talk to him. About He's insurance. annoying. Yeah. And then on the third day of the time loop, he wakes up and immediately, like, just in his pajamas, like, runs out. So it would at least I would say he saves at least half an hour. He doesn't shower. He doesn't do anything. He runs out, and he still runs into Ned on the exact same street at the exact same time. That would not happen because Ned would be there half an hour later. Yeah, you're right. Are you positing a Truman Show theory right now? Yeah. Yeah? No. 
No, I'm not. I just think that they missed. They it's an inconsistency. Yeah, but it's I a would, shame because it is a very consistent movie. I would say right. And also, again with the time thing, it's also like so he wakes up like I said the first day, whatever shows up, um, and they're like, "Where have you been?" Uh, implying I guess that he was a little late. But then when he becomes a better person, that's also shown in him showing up early and bringing them coffee. And I'm like, I don't think there's enough time in there for that big of a time difference to happen for you to like get dressed, get ready, go get coffee and pastries and then beat Rita and um, Chris Elliott's character's name doesn't matter <laughs> there. So just the 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 t- morning, the getting ready time, the wake up, get ready time is a little, a little not cool for me. It, it's fuzzy and uh, Paige is a consistent bitch and she will read you about it. So yeah. if you're going to write a time loop movie, make sure you're consistent with your time, okay? Yeah, and if you make plans with me, be on time. Oh, fuck. Okay. So now that he is um, a... Now that he is a fully good person who loves to do good works and can speak French, <laughs> that makes you a good person. Uh, and and uh, to, this, to the pretentious-ass Rita. Yeah, to, to pretentious-ass Rita. Um, now that he has all these great things about him and he's not uh, such a dickhead, he is good enough for the love of this uh, very pretentious woman. He won the girl. And now we have to ask the question, does, does their, their love stand, stand the, the test, test of time? time? Um, I am not crazy about this love story. No. I don't really feel like there's a huge amount of chemistry between Annie McDowell and Bill Murray to begin with. I mean, might have something to do with the fact that he seems like he was very unpleasant to work with and made him slap her. Yeah. Made him, her slap him. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, that's definitely, that definitely comes through. And in the writing as well. Like, I don't right. have really any love for either of these characters, to be honest. They don't sort of give us any indication of when he falls for Rita. Um, it doesn't, it's not clear when he first starts trying to seduce her, whether it's just like a fun challenge of like a new person to seduce or he like has feelings for her it sort of seemed that way to me that it was just like this is more challenging Mm -hmm. than nancy the bimbo but i guess we're supposed to think because he said her name in bed with nancy that like he's thinking about he's thinking about her but it feels like there's a scene missing as far as their romantic development yeah, I would agree with that. I acknowledge that it's it's pretty hard to have romantic development in a time loop. Right. Because only one person is developing. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and that definitely stunts this for me. But I also think that, like, Rita's not a, Rita's not a good character. Like, right. They really thought that they were doing a cool female character and they were, in fact, just two men making up a, a yeah. woman who... Oh, like, an early 90s version of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah, totally. Uh, as you can tell by her curly hair. That means right. that she's a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, for sure. Obviously, like we've said, especially at the beginning, it feels like he's just... He doesn't care if she likes him, right? Because he's just parroting back things she said to him. So it's also kind of like, why, why would you want to be with this person who doesn't like you? who yeah. likes this fake version of you you're creating. Is she just a vessel for you to put your penis into? Ew. I hate that. Okay, well. <laughs> I, You know, it's weird because when I, when I think about this movie, I think of it as a really good romantic comedy. Like, mm-hmm. that's... I would say it's a good comedy. 
I think it's a good comedy. I don't think it's a good romantic comedy, but it's funny that I, I've really, like, thought of it in my memory mm-hmm. up till this point as, like, a solid romantic comedy. I will also say the speech he gives her when she's kind of falling asleep in bed at the very end about how she's she's the kindest person he's ever met and, something you know, he wants to be worthy of her, etc. It's very sweet and cute, but it doesn't... It's very sweet. The scene is very sweet. It doesn't necessarily feel earned. Yeah, I agree, because I don't think we know anything about her besides that she was a French major. And, and she can quote an entire uh, Sir Walter Scott poem to oh, you. Oh, God, which also, like, if anyone did that to me, I would be like, please never speak to me again. Right. <laughs> Who is that for? Who is that for? He doesn't care about it. Sweet Jesus. That was, like, her character development. Yeah, it, it's rough. Um, I would love to see more from Rita. I would love to see this movie from Rita's perspective. Um, yeah, I would say that, like, as a romance, it's not great. Yeah, I would say it just doesn't hold up. I would say maybe if I saw this, if I was, you know... If you were 10 years old in Nicole McIntyre's basement? (laughs) Or if I was, you know, 22 in, in 1993 when this came out and, you know, hadn't, hadn't... Done your feminism Done my feminism work yet. Or even... Or learned what, like, a good mutual romance looks like maybe right if this uh, in a lot of 90s movies i mean we're not going to talk about a lot of them like you've got mail or sleepless in seattle i would say a lot of them probably would come up with against the exact same thing where i'm like this is this woman is not super character and neither they should not be together yeah, so oh, You've Got Mail is, yes. has that in spades, but yes. that's a different podcast, once again. So I would say this is a big, they were, men were trying to figure out how to write women, and um, they should just let women they, write women. Yeah, nobody thought about thought about that until Nora Ephron came along. She invented uh, women being able to write. She invented women. <laughs> she invented Fun women. Fun fact, Nora Ephron invented women. Uh, <laughs> which brings us to... Ladies, Ladies, did, did we, we just time travel back to the 1950s? Yeah, we've kind of covered this. Yeah, we've kind of covered this, but I would say this movie is not great for feminism. Not great for feminism. I don't think it passes the Bechdel test. Oh, definitely it, not. Andy, Andy McDowell is the only, well, I guess Nancy's also in the movie and she has lines. I would say, we know the waitress's name and maybe the waitress and Andy McDowell have an exchange. It, I don't remember the waitress. It's a very it's, marginal right. pass if it does pass. And I, I can't give it like no. a full stamp of approval for sure. Um, It's... Again, the Madonna horror complex, it's like you're either a bimbo or you are Andy McDowell. Those um, are the two options. Those are the two options. Yeah. It's it's really not great. There's a lot of not only sexual harassment, but like him trying to convince her to s- sleep with him, especially the first time, is a very, in a very like no means no uh, gray area type thing where she has to like leave for him to stop trying to make it happen. Yep. Um, it's hard to watch, to be honest, now. Right. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that, like, this film is not, that, like, you can't watch this film and enjoy it. I just think that, like, it does, it doesn't really hold up in that sense. And I think part of the reason it doesn't hold up for me is because it thinks it's doing good things, right? It thinks it wrote a strong female character. It thinks it is doing feminism by having Andy McDowell put up boundaries and be like, you don't actually love me you don't know me, I'm not, like, I think it thinks that Annie McDowell is, like, putting up boundaries 
in a, in a way, like, we love boundaries. And I like that she said to we him. We love boundaries. We love boundaries. I like that she said to him, you don't, you can't love me. You don't know me. Like, all of that. But, again, I'm not really sure why all of a sudden she is fine with it in the last one. But it's also, it doesn't, it's very, it's very, very surface level. It's very, like, feminist ally male wrote this thinking it was feminist and didn't run it by a single woman. Yeah, for sure. It just, it's, it's, it is surface level, I would say. And, and it's obvious now. Right. And I would say if it maybe was, if it, if it wasn't even trying, maybe I would less notice it, but because it thinks it's doing this great thing, I'm very aware of how not much it's not. They were like, look, we cast a curly-haired brunette lead. I don't know what more you want from us. <laughs> the waitress has a name. Okay. Okay, so we come to our last section, which we have aptly renamed. Is, Is it, it the, the best, best of times or, or the worst of times? Um, so yeah, so basically, should you watch it? And I would say yes. I would say, you know, if you like this genre, it's, again, it's kind of the pinnacle. It's uh if you can get through the, the sexual harassment of it all it's a very fun funny film um there's not my great, favorite i would say like there's great moments that really hold up for me it's like there are there are moments where i'm like yeah that was i'm having fun right now mm-hmm. as a whole i'm maybe not like wow what a great film still right but i think uh it's a good time I would say don't yeah. watch it if you like really need a romantic comedy to cry over, which is like how I normally use <laughs> romantic comedies. Um, but uh, if you feel like you know you need something low impact to kind of get you through the day, yeah, I would say it's it's a nostalgic time. Yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of great '90s vests. So many <laughs> vests. Yes. Oh my god. So I, I yeah. I mean I think. I would say on our, our noon to midnight doomsday clock, noon being a void and midnight being strapping right now, I would say this is like um, understanding its context in the overall genre um, that we love, like a 7 p.m. That's I was going to say 7 p.m. actually. Oh my gosh. That's, I've been holding back this whole time. No, I was going to say 7 because for me it is a nostalgia piece and I, it's like a little bit over over the watch, do not watch line for me. Right. Okay. All right. I think we did it. We got to figure out a better way to end these podcasts. Well, we have, we have a signature ending. You just always forget it. What is it? Uh, we'll be back in no time at all. Oh, we haven't discussed yet how the, the Bill Murray's name, also Phil. So he's the lesser Phil in this film. Sure. <laughs> That's it. That's, That's the whole thing. On that. That's the whole thing. Well, okay, take your time. We're not, like, back. We don't have to be back this second. No, I can, I can live without another cracker for a little no, you while. Can eat, you can eat more crackers. Do 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 do